Uh, this morning's passage is John 16, 16 through 33. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find the passage on page 902 in the Pew Bible. And as is our custom, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 16, starting in verse 16 through the end of the chapter. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me, and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Good morning. So uh, I'm sure this is I'm not a surprise to you. Today is December 29, which means that Christmas is over. 
Uh, some of us may be happy about that. We're ready to put the decorations away, toss the Christmas tree to the curb, clean and organize the house, and listen to just about anything other than Christmas music. Some of us, though, might be sad that Christmas has come to an end. We're no longer in that season of unhurried time with family and friends, of glad gift-giving and receiving, of celebrating Jesus' birth and what he's done for us. Instead, it's back to reality, where we return to work and routine, uh, prepare for another cold January, where it's getting dark outside by like 5 p.m., and we're facing yet another year where we'll be reminded in a number of ways that we live in a broken, sin-sick world. So what hope do we have with prospects like that? Well, whether you're happy, sad, conflicted, or ambivalent about Christmas being over, the fact is that we do live in a fallen world that is filled with evils. The Bible doesn't deny that. God is honest with us about the sorrows we experience here, and we are right to lament the things that have gone wrong. But Scripture does point us to a deep, abiding joy and peace in Jesus. And that's what I hope to focus our attention on this morning as we prepare to enter a new year. So our text for today, um, which Greg just read, is John 16, verses 16 to 33. So here we're fast-forwarding from what we just celebrated at Christmas, Jesus' birth, and considering some of Jesus' final words to his disciples just prior to his uh, arrest, um, betrayal, and um, death. In these verses, Jesus is honest about the sorrow that's coming, but he wants his disciples to know that joy will follow. He wants them to, to, to go to the Father in prayer in his name, and he wants them to have peace in him, joy, prayer in Jesus' name, and peace. All are made available to us in Jesus, and those are our three points this morning. So let's go ahead and dive into the text and look at that first point, joy. So this is verses 16 to 22. Now, before we, before we get into the text, um, first it's important to point out, I think, that this passage is part of what's called the, the farewell or upper room discourse in the Gospel of John. It runs from chapters 13 to 17, and it includes Jesus' final words to his disciples and his prayer to the Father uh, just before his death. So soon, he will be betrayed. He will be beaten. He will be crucified. But before that happens, he has some things that he wants to tell his followers. Now, earlier in chapter 16, he says that he's going away to the Father and sending the Holy Spirit to his disciples. Now, starting in verse 16, here's what he says to them. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father, Jesus says that in verse 10 of chapter 16. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? So 
the disciples are confused by Jesus's words. But before we look down on them for their lack of understanding, we should ask, what is Jesus talking about? Commentators actually offer a few possible interpretations. For example, when Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer, he could be referring to his death or he could be referring to his ascension into heaven. And when he says, and again a little while and you will see me, he could be talking about his resurrection or he could be talking about the sending of the Holy Spirit or he could even be talking about the second coming. Or it's also possible that he has multiple meanings in mind. I think the most likely explanation is that Jesus is referring to his death when he says, a little while and you will see me no longer, and to his resurrection when he says, and again a little while and you will see me. But given Jesus' teaching on the coming of the Holy Spirit, Spirit earlier in this farewell discourse and here in chapter 16, it does seem possible that he could also have in, have in mind that the sending or the coming of the Spirit when he says, and again a little while and you will see me. So let's tease this out. In a little while, the disciples will see Jesus no longer. In a matter of hours, Judas will lead a band of soldiers and some religious leaders to him, and Jesus will be arrested, beaten, crucified, and laid in a tomb. The one the disciples loved, the one they gave up everything to follow, the one they believed to be the Messiah who would liberate his people from their oppressors and establish his kingdom would be dead. He would be buried. Just imagine the grief and confusion that they must have felt in that moment, that they would feel when that happens. That's why Jesus says in verse 20, I think, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world those who stand opposed to God will rejoice. It's because Jesus is going to die. But don't forget the other part of Jesus' statement. He also says, and again a little while and you will see me. Again, I think that that most clearly refers to his resurrection. So Jesus didn't stay dead in that tomb. The grave couldn't hold him. Three days after he was crucified, he rose victoriously and triumphantly over the grave, over death, never to die again. And he appeared to his disciples. And when that happens, later in John, in chapter 20, verses 19 and 20, the text says that the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So what Jesus promises here in verse 20 of chapter 16 comes to pass. He says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Sorrow into joy. In verse 21, Jesus compares this transformation to childbirth. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, that illustration is significant, I think, for at least a couple of reasons. First, because it emphasizes what Jesus has already said, that the disciples' sorrow won't last. It will turn into joy. Jesus wants them to know that. And second, because it says something about how this transformation, 
this transformation from sorrow into joy is going to actually be accomplished. Listen to William Hendrickson's comments here on this. He says, the illustration which Jesus employs in verse 21 seems to indicate that the meaning of the statement in verse 20 is not merely this, that grief would be followed by joy, but rather this, that the very event which would cause overwhelming grief would afterward be viewed as a sound reason for superlative rejoicing. In the light of Easter, when Jesus rose from the dead, and of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes to Jesus' followers, the source of mourning, namely the cross, becomes the source of exultation, so that Paul can exclaim in Galatians 6.14, far be it from me to glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Yes, the disciples will soon see Jesus no longer. Jesus will be crucified and they're going to weep and lament while the world, those in opposition to God, rejoice. But Jesus wants them to know that that sorrow is not gonna last. It will turn into joy when Jesus rises from the dead and sees them again. As Jesus says in verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. Why is that? Why is it that after Jesus rises from the dead and appears to his disciples, and remember that Jesus may also have in mind the sending of the Holy Spirit, why is it that they will have a joy that can't be taken away. Well, I think we could say a few things. For one, I think that it's possible this is an indication of the, the Holy Spirit's future work in the hearts of Jesus' people. Remember that Jesus has promised to send the Holy Spirit to them, and he delivers on that promise. Later, after his death, he's going to rise again. But then he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father and send the Holy Spirit to his people. He will dwell with his people through his Spirit who will guide them into all truth. He'll always be with them. That's something new. That's something that they hadn't experienced before. That's something that's lasting, that can't be taken away. It's a joy that is irrevocable. But I think there are a couple of other things that we can say. Uh, and, and this comes from, from John Piper. He offers two reasons that I think are really helpful. So he says, first, no one will take your joy from you because your joy comes from being with Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus means that Jesus will never die again. He will never be cut off from you. The other reason is this. No one will take your joy from you because your joy comes from being with Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus means that you will never die. You will never be cut off from him. You see, two things have to be true if your joy is never to be taken away from you. One is that the source of your joy lasts forever, and the other is that you last forever. If either you or the source of your joy is mortal, your joy will be taken from you. Think about what that would have meant for Jesus' disciples. They're getting ready to enter the furnace, so to speak. Jesus doesn't shy away from that, but he plainly states it. Soon he will be betrayed, arrested, 
beaten and crucified. And as that moment approaches, as sorrow knocks on the disciples' doors, Jesus' hour comes when he will be crucified, he speaks a word of comfort and assurance to his disciples. He acknowledges the loss and sorrow, but he guarantees victory and promises joy that can't be taken away. Now, the disciples, they wouldn't have understood everything that he meant at this moment, but they would have known his love for, for them. They, they would have a word of comfort and assurance to cling to when that sorrow came. They would also have actually received what Jesus promised. He really would rise from the dead and see them again. He really would send them the Holy Spirit, the helper who would guide them into all the truth. And because of this, they really would possess joy that is indestructible. But what about for us? What about for, for you and me? What does Jesus' teaching here say? Well, first, I think there's a word here for anyone who may be with us this morning who's not trusting Jesus. If you're here today and you're not trusting Christ, know that Jesus offers joy that cannot be killed. And he does this based on what he's accomplished. On the cross, Jesus paid the debt that we have accumulated through our rebellion against God. All of us, every single one of us, we have filled up the cup of God's wrath because of our sin, because of our rebellion against him. But on the cross, the promise for those who are trusting Christ is that Jesus drank that cup all the way to the bottom. There's nothing left. There's no more condemnation. So as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. But that's not all. Three days after Jesus' death, he rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death, and he'll live forever. He'll never die. And because of what he has done, the promise is that if you turn away from your sins and you trust him to save you and be your king, you won't either. You will live forever and ever with Jesus, your Savior and your God. So I would encourage you if, you, if you don't know Christ this morning, if you aren't trusting in him, be reconciled to him today. He offers this to you as a free gift for the taking. All that he asks is that you come to him with nothing. Don't try to come with your best deeds. Don't try to come with your good works. Come to him with the empty hands of faith. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Trust him to save you and commit to following him. He will. He will save you. He'll save you this morning. So if that's you, please come and see me when the service is over. I would love to talk to you or set up a time later in the week uh, to meet with you and we can talk about this more. But for those of us who are trusting Christ, I think this gives us comfort and assurance too. We have lots of reasons to be sorrowful, don't we? From death to disease to persecution, to abuse, to loneliness, to family and relational strife, to adultery, to 
addiction, to injustice, to disappointment, to the unbelief in our nation and this world, to things like racism, to the sin in our world, both without and the sin in our own hearts. There are all kinds of reasons for us to lament. But there's also a reason that Christians have the unique ability to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And it's because our joy is not based in our circumstances. So that means when any of those things that we just mentioned come, whether it's cancer, whether it's death, whether it's uh, the loss of financial stability, whether it's the unbelief of a family member or, or a friend, nothing ultimately can take your joy from you. Jesus is our joy and he can't be killed and we'll live with him forever. And because that's true, we can rightly grieve what's gone wrong here. We should lament, but we can and we should have a deep-seated joy that runs underneath it, a joy that no one and no sorrow can take away. And so if you're trusting in Jesus, keep on looking to him. Keep pursuing him in the word. Keep obeying him. Keep, as, as Jesus says in John chapter 15, keep abiding in him and trusting him and obeying him. He is our joy. But there's more that we can do. And that leads us to our second point, prayer. This is verses 23 to 28 of chapter 16. So in verse 23, Jesus says to his disciples, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Now, by this, again, he could mean uh, after, that after his resurrection, they'll ask the Father in his name. He mentions that later in this verse. Or Jesus could be referring to the fact that after his resurrection, the disciples are going to have greater understanding either because they see him in person or because they've received the Holy Spirit who guides them in truth. But in that day, they will ask nothing of him. He continues in verses 23 to 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Prior to Jesus' death and resurrection, the disciples didn't ask the Father for things in Jesus' name. This is new. Because of what Jesus accomplished on their behalf, this privilege will now be theirs. They will now approach the Father in the name of the Son based on his work on their behalf in his name. William Hendrickson explains it like this. He says, up to this time, the disciples in their prayers had addressed themselves directly to God without making mention of the name of Jesus. Not as if the mere mentioning of his name would help any. Certainly, when a believer concludes his prayer by saying, all this we ask in Jesus' name, he's not using a magic formula. What he means is, we ask all this on the basis of Christ's merits and in harmony with his redemptive revelation. So that's the privilege that Jesus opens to his disciples and to all who trust in him. Prayer to the Father in his name on the basis of what he has done for us through his perfect life, sacrificial death, and triumphant resurrection. 
Now, we could say a lot about that, but one thing to point out is that I think this helps explain Jesus' meaning when he tells the disciples that the Father will give them whatever they ask of him in Jesus' name. So does that mean that literally whatever you ask of the Father, as long as you pray in the name of Jesus, he'll give it to you? No, it doesn't mean that. Jesus is saying that the Father will give them what they ask in his name, meaning if they pray in faith on the basis of what Jesus has done, if they pray in accordance with Jesus' will, the Father answers those requests. James Montgomery Boyce points that out, and he says this, There are many times when we do not know the will of God, and when that is the case, we must pray cautiously, allowing the Holy Spirit to interpret our prayers aright. But when we know God's will, as we do wherever it is revealed in Scripture, then we may pray confidently in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and know that we shall receive the petitions that we have requested of him. So that's really good news. But what does that look like in daily life? Well, here are just a few examples. So take, take forgiveness, for example. So when we sin, we can pray and ask God to forgive us and trust in absolute confidence that he does. So in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or when we're worried, like when we're trusting in Jesus, but we're worried that we may not make it. Like when you, when you look around and you see all of these people who are professing Jesus, who abandon the faith, and, and you might be tempted to think, oh no, Am I, am I next? Like, is it going to be me? We can pray with confidence and ask God to keep us, trusting and believing that he's going to. Because Paul says in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If Jesus has started a good work in you, he will finish it. And we can pray confidently along those lines. Or how about wisdom? When we recognize our need for wisdom, we can ask God for it, trusting that he's going to provide. So as James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But what about something like healing? So here, it's a little different. The Lord does not guarantee good health. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. So if we're sick or if we know one who's sick, can we pray about that? How do we, how do we approach the Father uh, when that happens? Well, I think this is where uh, Boyce's comment is helpful. He said, remember, when we don't know the will of God, he says, when that is the case, we must pray cautiously, allowing the Holy Spirit to interpret our prayers aright. So when we are praying for healing, either for us or for someone else, I think we can boldly approach the throne, God's throne of grace, and plead with him to heal. But we must do so trusting that God may say no, that that may not be his will. We must do so trusting that God always does what's best and what's right, even when it's hard for us to understand. 
I think it's similar in regard to salvation. The Lord doesn't promise to save everyone. But it is true, based on 2 Peter 3, 9, that he doesn't wish for any to perish, but for all to reach repentance. So we can pray, we can boldly approach God's throne of grace and ask him to save our family members. Ask him to save our friends and neighbors and coworkers. But again, we must do so trusting that God always does what's best and God always does what's right, even when it may be hard for us to understand. And what's the, what's the result of prayers like these? Well, back to John 16, Jesus says it in verse 24. He says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. As we pray in Jesus' name and as the Father grants our requests, our joy will increase. So we already have in Christ a joy that can't be taken away, but that joy can actually grow through praying and having our prayers answered. Jesus wants that for his disciples and Jesus wants that for you and me. And so I think as we head into 2020, let's resolve by God's grace to pray more this year than we ever have. I don't think we, we would regret that. Let's resolve to pray big prayers that only God can answer. Let's resolve to pray in accordance with Jesus' will and for his glory. Let's not miss out on the joy that God has for us. As John Piper, he says, quote, among professing Christians, prayerlessness always produces joylessness. So let's hear that and let's instead go to the Father in prayer in the name of the Son, receive answers to prayer and be a more joyful, happy in Jesus people. Now, before we move on to our last point, skip down to verses 26 to 28 and notice how Jesus clarifies his meaning on prayer to the Father in his name. So he says, in that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. So Jesus isn't a middleman who hears the disciples' prayers and then takes them to God as if, as if the Father doesn't want to get too close. No, he says that they can go directly to the Father in his name. And why is that true? It's because the Father himself loves them because they love Jesus and believe that he came from God. That was true for the disciples then, and it's true for everyone who's trusting in Jesus now. Some of you may need to hear that this morning. You may have come in here this morning feeling beaten up or, or, or feeling down and out, Maybe you need to hear that if you're trusting Jesus, the Father himself loves you. I think we all, in the deep recesses of our hearts, long for that. We want to hear that. And God in Christ offers it to us. The Father himself loves us. How comforting is that? That doesn't mean that Jesus does not intercede for us. He does. But instead, this means that, that, that Christ isn't, like, like we said, some kind of middleman who, who, who uh, 
uh, bars us from getting too close to God. Listen to a longer quote from John Piper on this. I think this is so encouraging. He says, don't make God's son more of a mediator than he is. That may sound a little um, uh, inflammatory, but hear him out. Don't make God's son more of a mediator than he is. It is absolutely true that no sinful human being has any access to the Father except through Jesus' blood. He intercedes for us now. He is our advocate with the Father now. He is our high priest before the throne of God now. He said, no one comes to the Father except through me, yes. But Jesus is protecting us from taking his intercession too far. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Jesus is there. He is providing an ever-present, ever-living witness to the removal of the Father's wrath, wrath from us. But he is not there to talk for us or to keep us at a distance from the Father or to suggest that the Father's heart is guarded toward us or disinclined to us. Hence the words, for the Father himself loves you. So come, come boldly. Come expectantly. Come expecting a smile. Come trembling with joy, not dread. Jesus is saying, I have made a way to God. Now I'm, now I'm not going to get in the way. Come. Man, that is good news. That is encouraging. That is what Jesus has done for us. And so, Bethel, let's, let's do just this. Let's go to the Father in prayer in the name of Jesus based on what Christ has done for us through his death, resurrection, and sending of the Holy Spirit. And finally, and this is our last point, let's also remember the peace that we have in Jesus. So this is verses 29 to 33. So after Jesus clarifies his meaning about prayer in his name, he says in verse 28, I came from the Father, and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father, likely referring to his ascension. His disciples respond to that in verses 29 to 30 and say, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. So it seems that the disciples think they have greater understanding than they really do. It seems that they may have thought that what Jesus mentions in verse 25 had already happened. There Jesus says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. But the fact is, the disciples, they don't yet fully understand what Jesus is about to do. They won't until after Jesus rises from the dead ascends into heaven and sends to them the Holy Spirit. And so in verses 31 to 33, Jesus answers them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone for the Father is with me. This happens in short order. Jesus is betrayed, he is arrested, and he is crucified, and his disciples, they leave him. They, they leave him alone. None, none 
follow him so closely as to stay with him on the cross. I think it was D.A. Carson who said that. None, cl- none cling to him like that. They all are scattered. But Jesus says the Father is with him. But he, he wants them to know that the Father is with them. And he says to them, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, don't miss the encouragement that I think is here. I think there's a lot that we can say, but one thing to point out, notice what Jesus is saying. He's telling his disciples, you're getting ready to abandon me. You're getting ready to leave. He's going to be killed. And in the face of that, he looks back at all that he said in this discourse, and he says that he's told them these these things so that in him they would have peace. Leon Morris, he, he, says, he, he comments on it like this. He says, when they had all forsaken Jesus, they might well feel so ashamed that they would remain uneasy whenever they thought of him. But he predicted their desertion in the very saying in which he assured them of the peace he would give them. He loved them for what they were and despite their shortcomings. When in the future they looked back on their desertion, they could reflect that Jesus had predicted it. And in the full knowledge that they would act in this way, he had promised them peace. The world will infallibly bring them trouble. That is its characteristic. But he can bid them take heart. He had overcome the world. This statement, spoken as it is in the shadow of the cross, is audacious. The cross would seem to the outsider to be Jesus' total defeat. He sees it as his complete victory over all that the world is and can do to him. He goes to the cross, not in fear or in gloom, but as a conqueror. That's what Jesus does for us. He offers us peace based on who he is and and what he has done. And and this peace, R.C. Sproul says, he defines it as true reconciliation with God, purchased with his death. It is the supreme remedy for all fears and the legacy Jesus left for his heirs. That's what we have if we are in Christ. That's what Jesus has accomplished for us. We know this on the other side of the cross. He gives us joy that cannot be taken away. He opens for us direct access to the Father so that we can now pray to the Father in the name of Jesus on the basis of what he's done. And he gives us peace. He gives us assurance Assurance that we are in him. Assurance that he is our savior, that he is our righteousness, that we are his. The song that we sang earlier, um, It Is Well, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the background behind that song, but it was written by a man named Horatio Spafford. He wrote it after his four children died in a shipwreck. Listen again, knowing that, uh, to the lyrics of this song. I think that this, this, this highlights the kind of peace that we have in Jesus. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. 
Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. And as if it's not already good enough, I love the last verse. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. That's the joy, that's the peace, that's the security and comfort and assurance we have in Jesus. Circumstances, even death, even something so tragic as the loss of this man's four kids can't take it away. Again, we can rightly lament the things that have gone wrong, but because we are Jesus's, because he will never die and we will live with him forever, our joy is indestructible. And because of what he has done, we have a peace with him that the world, that those who are opposed to Jesus, that trials and tribulations can't remove. Trials can't do it. The, the devil can't do it. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Even uh, memories of our own sin or recognition and awareness of our current sin that we so want to be delivered from, that can't do it. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, that's all of it is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. It's pure, unadulterated joy in what Jesus has done for us, has done for us, his people. So as we head into the new year, let's remember the joy that we have in Christ, the contentment, the happiness that we have in him. Let's keep looking to him, keep abiding in him, keep following him. Let's keep praying to the Father, going to the Father in the name of Jesus based on what he's done. Let's pray big prayers and wait for the Father to answer and experience the joy that follows. And let's remember the peace that we have in Jesus, that no matter what this world throws at you, you have peace in Christ because he is victorious. He is overcome. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him to do for us what we could never do on our own. Thank you for sending him to take away our sin, to bring us to you, to give us peace with you, to reconcile us to you, to give us righteousness. Thank you, Jesus, for, for, for coming and accomplishing what you set out to do, for living a perfect life, dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Thank you, Spirit, for your work in our hearts even now, guiding us into truth, convicting us of our sin, glorifying Jesus, leading us to him. We pray that you would continue to work in our hearts in powerful ways. Make us 
more like Jesus. Enable us to keep beholding Jesus, to keep following him, to keep finding our joy in him. Enable us to keep praying, to keep pursuing you, Father, in, in prayer in Jesus' name. And I pray that you would guard us with your peace in the midst of a, of a hostile world, in the midst of the trials and tribulations that may come our way this year. May we have uh, an overflowing, uh, abounding peace in Jesus. So, uh, God, I, I praise you for what you have done. I praise you, Father, Son, and, and Spirit, for your work on our behalf. Lord, please be near to us. Please be gracious to us. Do powerful things among us and in us and through us. And Lord, I pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Will you all stand and sing with us? We are going to sing It Is Well one more time.